You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. A fault line in American evangelical Christianity is increasingly apparent. As Exhibit A and B, consider two articles of the past three months. One, Reparations, a Critical Theological Review, published by Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition on April 22, 2021, dealing with the book Reparations, a Christian Call for Repentance and Renewal, by Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. The other, Sanctifying the Status Quo, a response to Reverend Kevin DeYoung by the authors of that book, DeYoung Reviewed and Critiqued, published July 19, 2021, at the front porch. Wanting to deal more directly with DeYoung at present than with Kwan and Thompson, let me nevertheless point out, for the moment, the low-down dirtiness yet growing commonality of smearing a critic for being a racist supporter of white supremacy merely for having the temerity to disagree openly and at length using some measure of authority with a pseudo-theological, pseudo-historical, pseudo-psychological, pseudo-economical, thoroughly political attempt to argue for reparations. Argumentum ad hominem much? Quan and Thompson, for their part, assure us Kevin DeYoung is not a white supremacist and racist, per se. But then they argue at length that his methodology is thoroughly racist and white supremacist. If only we were not ourselves such racists and white supremacists, we would have the wisdom, godliness, and maturity to take their word for this paradox. If only we could get a non-racist word in edgewise, perhaps also we could talk about Antonio Gramsci. But alas, wisdom is too high for the fool, and civil discourse is apparently the last thing on the minds of proponents of CRT, even in the church, and even when those proponents are pastors. Indeed, the whole notion of civil discourse is merely a product of that very whiteness for which we are ceaselessly called to repentance. Grace? What grace? Ask such questions of the woke Christians, and you are changing the subject to salvation. But if you dare go pleading the cause of anything which might remotely sound like innocent white people having their lives and livelihoods destroyed in the name of anti-racism, they do not countenance that sort of talk around here, where the new woke gospel reigns supreme. The thought of professing Christians being gracious and merciful to other professing Christians is beyond the pale and not even an afterthought. Grace and mercy are for the afterlife. We need to start talking dollars and cents and centuries now. And only cash payments and absolute submission will cure what ails the sick patient. Lord have mercy. With all this talk of reparations, it will take a miracle to truly repair the damage being done in the pursuit of self-promoting, virtue-signaling, malignant leftism dressed up in church clothes. Pay heed to the example of Pastor DeYoung. Being gracious with the likes of Quan and Thompson scores you no meaningful or enduring points. They seek to limit our options to surrendering or dying. Agree wholly or be cast out into outer darkness where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the rules. 
Or perhaps there is another and better way. And maybe we, like de Young, should try a little more clarity and directness and a little less trying to be winsome with wolves in shepherd garb. To give a review of a review may seem like an odd thing to do, but we can learn a lot from examining closely de Young's treatment of this work and the response one pastor publicly got from two other pastors thereby. De Young is well-spoken for the most part, but he is like us in this one key regard. We can all get better at communication. And though I agree with all of de Young's concerns stated in the nearly 6,000-word piece he published at TGC, he does pull his punches and send mixed signals. First and foremost, how is it possible for Quan and Thompson to be presenting a competing worldview and biblical framework in their work to be wrong in so many key and foundational ways and for those two pastors to still be publicly affirmed by de Young for loving Jesus, the gospel, and the church? Why compliment them for their work while at the same time calling out that same work for being dangerous, misguided, and antithetical to Orthodox Christian life and practice? Perhaps it is not necessary or helpful to attack Quan and Thompson personally, but we should nevertheless describe them clearly. Are we still trying to wrestle with what precisely to make of critical race theory and anti-racism and proving indecisive and muddied as a result? Are we afraid of being decried as a white supremacist and racist? And are we consequently pulling our punches to the greatest extent possible, hedging our bets thereby? If so, the concerns which drive us to this are not unfounded or mysterious. Caution is warranted or at least understandable. All the same, we need to steer well clear of flattery and ambiguity. Such things provide too much encouragement to the continuation of behavior unbecoming of the Christian, clergy, or layperson. The truth of where the new brand of woke Christianity is coming from is, like the subjects woke Christians often prefer to talk about so confidently, a bit more complicated than we sometimes wish to admit. Nevertheless, the complexity of the whole business is all the more reason to be clear and direct rather than less just so, in the interest of encouraging greater clarity and boldness, we who care about doctrinal purity and faithfulness to God in every facet of life need to be bolder ourselves, even as we refrain from affirming a twisted kind of boldness on the part of men like Quan and Thompson. Their aggression should be more rightly derided as brashness than applauded as courage. If we call them brave, it is like crediting a very audacious burglar for attempting a risky caper. Either this is false teaching or it is not. Either these truth claims are compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ or they are not. And if we are not quite sure one way or the other, let us dedicate more time and energy to examining the origin of these analytical tools for what it is. Cultural Marxism, plain and simple. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is episode 106 of season three, episode 171 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today is July 23rd, 2021, a Friday, and thank God it is Friday. I've had training Monday through Thursday this week. I now have completed Control Logic's advanced course put on by Todd Carr from Kentucky. Todd did a great job teaching Scott Walston, Tyler Stevenson, and myself past four days 
my brain is a little bit tired, a little sore, but it will rest and recover over the weekend, I trust. And I want to thank Todd Carr for putting on the training, for giving us greater ability to do what we need to do for sterling energy and for our families, because in the long run, these tools that we just acquired help us to take care of our families, to be more competent professionals. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Also, too, a shout out. Thank you, Todd, for being a listener to this program. It was a pleasure talking with you, getting to shake hands with you this week, and uh, I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. But let's dive into the topic today. The last two episodes have been fairly long, and I will go back to the 30-minute format, I promise, but I don't want to cut short what needs to be addressed in this recent couple of articles I became aware of between Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition, PCA pastor, as I understand it, as I'm told, and Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan, also either current or former PCA pastors. One of them is a current pastor. The other is a former PCA pastor. These two articles give us a snapshot of what's going on, what Vody Bauckham describes in his recent book, Fault Lines. This is the fault line in evangelical Christianity. I opened this podcast episode with a reading of my most recent submission to Ingladii Veritas, The Sword of Truth. That piece that I wrote for you is just a quick refresher in case you missed the first two episodes talking about this book, Reparations. That is a quick summary. Now you're pretty well up to speed, but feel free to go back, listen to the previous two episodes where I talk more specifically about this back and forth and DeYoung's review. But in this episode, I want to deal with the response from Thompson and Kwan to DeYoung's review of their book. And before I get into their response and into the weeds and to the specific arguments and claims that they're making, statements that they're making, I just want to say this. They employ a lot of cheap tricks in their response to DeYoung. They obviously have invested themselves in writing this book. It's not a shocker that an author might write a book and then be a little bit wounded or upset or take it personally if somebody critiques that book. But the specific cheap shots that they take out of their apparent frustration and sensitivity are telling. And they're very common to the woke crowd. I have a number of friends who I knew from high school, who went off to college, who went off to state schools, and they studied to become public school teachers. And next thing you know, I'm back and forth with them on Facebook before I got off of Facebook, back when I was still on Facebook, up until uh, the end of November 2020. Last summer, I, about this time, was getting into it on a pretty regular basis with my friends Nathan Smith and Stephanie Marie Watson. And both of them being public school teachers, either current or former public school teachers, I don't remember 
if Nathan Smith was at the time or if he was working for a charter school, which is a little bit different than your conventional you know, public school environment. But both of them were 110% on board with Black Lives Matter, with the George Floyd quote-unquote protests, not really protests, actually, uh, by and large, riots uh, disguised as protests or being presented to the public as protests. Nathan and Stephanie, my two friends from Bible study, from youth group, from church, from high school days, wedded their Christian faith to this call, this impassioned call to support Black Lives Matter, to affirm Black Lives Matter, to affirm these quote-unquote peaceful protests or mostly peaceful protests. And they did not take kindly at all to my criticizing the basis for the protests, the underlying narrative, the claims that were being made. I argued against systemic racism. I argued against critical race theory as they were presenting it. I argued against the cultural Marxism inherent to Black Lives Matter. I argued against all of these things as calmly, as patiently, as graciously, as politely as I possibly could. And the response I got was abusive, plain and simple. Uh, it pained me greatly that at first I got condescension, like, there, there, you stupid white boy. You don't understand these things like we do. If you had got the education that we have, you would understand. But why don't you just take our word for it? And when I ask specific critical questions of their claims and of their narrative here, the narrative that they are uncritically uh, repeating, the critical narrative that they're uncritically repeating, I got increasing hostility and increasing uh, not just condescension, but uh, slanderous attacks and insinuations that I was culpable. I was part of this, uh, you know, inherent systemic racism that's baked into American society, that I was wasting their time if I was demanding or asking or requesting some kind of a justification for the claims that they were making. Hey, what is there in the way of evidence to support what you're saying? Well, I can give you a lot of stories from black brothers and sisters who've told me that they get pulled over more often than white people do for speeding. I've talked with black brothers and sisters who walk through the grocery store and they get asked if they can be helped, unlike the white people who are right next to them, because apparently the person working for that retail store thinks that this black woman or black man is going to steal something by virtue of their being black and in this store. You can't even shop while black. You can't drive while black in America because we are just all a bunch of racists. All of us are. And even my questioning, my asking, my arguing the case was ascribed to white supremacy on my part, white privilege on my part, uh, a lack of compassion on my part. And I see that up and down this response from Quan and Thompson. It is all over the response from Quan and Thompson. It's all too familiar. The fact that they are two pastors engaging in this makes it all the more reprehensible. I didn't put up with two old friends of mine, former friends apparently, but two old friends of mine talking to me that way, treating me that way, publicly no less. And I have even less patience for two pastors 
treating another, I, as far as I know, as far as I'm aware, well-respected pastor, Kevin DeYoung, this way. It's wrong. It's vicious. It's wicked. It's, it's wicked. And yet it's being dressed up in pious-sounding language as if this is just how the game is played now. This is acceptable. This is okay. Some of the interesting back and forth I had with J.P. Chavez, who I greatly respect and I enjoy, and he's a great blessing to me. His family has been a great blessing to our family. Some of the back and forth that we've had about this has centered on whether it's fair to critique Kevin DeYoung too much for his being gracious to Quan and Thompson. And that's a fair question, right? It is a judgment call, how gracious you are and when it crosses the line from being gracious and kind and giving credit to somebody and showing them respect and honor, uh, even when they're not being particularly respectable or honorable. You know, whether that's a good call, whether that's effective communication, in my opinion, it isn't. Uh, in JP's opinion, at least last we spoke about it, unless I changed his mind in my two most recent podcast episodes, uh, you know, that was a good call on DeYoung's part because it basically is a way of proving that he doesn't have any personal animus against them. Right. And that's fair, right? That's fair to say, hey, I don't have any personal animus against you two gentlemen, you two pastors, Quan Thompson. Here's just the facts of the matter. Looking at the claims you make theologically in your book, Reparations, here are the problems with what you're saying. Right. Personalities aside, you might be very, you know, friendly people, very enjoyable, pleasant people. Uh, but you have some real problems in your theology that you're presenting in this book. So I won't belabor that point any further. I am still of the opinion that it was a wrong call on DeYoung's part. I'm not going to rake him over the coals anymore about it. I'll just leave what I've said well enough for the time being. And in this episode, I want to talk more specifically about Quan and Thompson, how they respond to DeYoung criticizing their work. Now, if you follow the link that will be in this podcast description, it will take you to thefrontporch.org, to this piece by Quan and Thompson that they wrote and they published just this past week on the 19th. If you are at the very top of the page, you will see one of the two authors, his picture is up there, big and bold. Uh, Reverend Duke Quan is how he is presented, uh, current pastor, and then also Greg Thompson is one of the two authors of this piece. And I think it's somewhat funny that they have the picture of Reverend Kwan up front, perhaps because he's not white, and they want to make absolutely clear that they're being inclusive and diverse in their response here. But alas, they start off with Martin Luther King Jr. and a quote from him regarding his disappointment with pastors, with what it says about our approach to the gospel when we minimize the social issues which the gospel should have some bearing on, which the gospel should speak to. And what's so ironic to me is that I agree with 
the general tone and tenor of what Martin Luther King Jr. was saying from the Birmingham jail. I agree in general with his critique if there are pastors who are hiding behind the gospel and saying, well, we're not going to get into the sin that is at present plaguing our communities and our congregations even. The difference between my attitude on this and that of Quan and Thompson is that they insert woke Christianity into the gap and say that woke Christianity is the cure for what ails us. Whereas I'm looking at woke Christianity and saying, no, 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 woke Christianity is what ails us right now. It is woke Christianity, which we need to reckon with and not hide behind spiritualizing language so that we can avoid until it passes over. So a big difference, right? We're, we're coming at this diametrically opposed. I want to just tell you that up front in case you haven't listened to this podcast before and are unfamiliar. But if you scroll down, they make a lot of the quote that they start the article with or start their response with from MLK. And they basically aim that MLK quote square at DeYoung's chest to say, you are what's wrong with American Christianity. Your review of our book is exactly what's wrong with American Christianity today. That's what we are upset about. That's what we are concerned about. And come to Jesus. The essence of our disagreement is their second section. And I'll just read here a piece of it. I won't necessarily read the whole thing because it's very long. DeYoung's uh, review of their book was very long. Their response to DeYoung's review is also very long. Uh, DeYoung's review was, I think, about 6,000 words, give or take a few hundred. And Quan and Thompson's response to DeYoung comes in at 9,820 words. That includes a lot of quotes of DeYoung, but still, it's an almost 10,000-word long response. So these are going to take you some time if you read through them in their entirety. But if you look at section 2, the essence of our disagreement, I'll just start reading here from the top. Quote, to begin, we offer our sincere appreciation to Reverend DeYoung, both for reading our book and for taking the time to offer public reflections on it. Some of our differences of conviction, quote, profound disagreements, end quote, as he described them, are neither insignificant nor fleeting. Still, at a time when many blithely dismiss any serious discussion of reparations, DeYoung took the time to consider our arguments and respond to them. We do not take this for granted, and we wish publicly to honor him for it. Not only this, we also wish to affirm straightforwardly that DeYoung raises important questions about reparations, and we happily acknowledge that we have not fully resolved some of these questions either in print or in private. He is right, for example, to ask for clarity about who exactly is culpable for reparations and on what grounds. He is also right to press for greater clarity about the nature of reparative obligation and about when that obligation is met. 
and he is right to wonder about the impact of time, the passing of generations on the shape of reparative action. Indeed, we are ourselves in daily and ongoing conversation with practitioners around the world seeking to clarify these very matters. This is because, as we repeatedly affirm in the book, we think these questions are best answered not a priori and in the abstract, but through the collaborative conversations in local communities. Even so, it is important for both our readers and his readers to understand that we openly share some of de Young's questions and work daily toward their resolution. These questions, however important as they are, do not yet capture the essence of our disagreement. In our view, our disagreement lies not in the questions themselves, but in the starkly differing ways in which we respectively relate to them. That's fair. Quick footnote from Garrett. That's fair. That is quite correct. Continuing. Namely, while de Young appears to view the unresolved ambiguities around reparations as the grounds for dismissing reparations altogether, that's not quite honest, sorry, point of order, appears to view, what, you're, you're being a weasel about it, sorry. Uh, while de Young appears to view the unresolved ambiguities around reparations as the grounds for dismissing reparations altogether, we believe these same ambiguities to be an exciting occasion for the ongoing creative work of theological reflection. Here we ask the reader to pause and to ask why this is. Why is it that when faced with the very same conceptual ambiguities, de Young chooses to close the door on reparations while we seek to open it further? This is a critical question. Indeed, it is in our judgment the critical question. And it is so because it suggests that the essence of our disagreement with de Young is not about technical questions raised by reparations. Again, questions that we share but about how we approach those questions, about our respective dispositions toward them. In other words, the essence of our disagreement is not formally substantive, as Reverend DeYoung seems to believe it to be, but fundamentally methodological, and it is in this respect much more serious. Because of this, in what follows, our intent is not to answer specific technical questions about reparations per se, <laughs> but to expose and critique the method with which Reverend DeYoung approaches them. As we do so, we understand that some of our critics may see this as a form of evasion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. I'm raising my hand. You can't see it if you're just listening to audio here, but I'm raising my hand for the point of order. I do see this as a form of evasion. Yes, indeedy. You better believe it. As an attempt to escape the force of probing examination, but this is false. Okay. Uh, to the contrary, we engage these questions and are engaged by them every day. The actual reason for our approach is this. We believe that the methodology Reverend DeYoung employs actually keeps him from taking these questions seriously as an occasion for true theological reflection. Okay, this is where the ad hominem begins. Argumentum ad hominem, argument against the person. It's very subtle. It's very polite. I'm very politely slipping this knife between your ribs, DeYoung. So says Quan and Thompson. In fact, it guarantees that he cannot do so. Not only is it him taking these questions not seriously and not truly reflecting on them, it's not just a risk, it's a guarantee that he cannot take these questions seriously and reflect on them. We believe that until his methodology, a methodology broadly employed in current evangelical conversations on race, is seen, understood, and renounced, the true answers 
to these important questions will never be found. Indeed, they will never be sought. Put most simply, our view is this. While Reverend DeYoung's subtitle indicates that he believes his review to be an expression of a theological project, we believe his review actually to be expressive of a cultural project that seeks perennial to justify itself on theological grounds. You know what? Back at you, right? Like, two can play that game, and this feels a lot like Democrats accusing Republicans of the same things which they routinely do. It's projection. Saul Alinsky talks about this in Rules for Radicals. He literally outright encourages community organizers. He's the father of modern community organizing. He encourages community organizers to accuse their opponents of the very same things that they themselves do. Beat your opponent to the punchline. If you accuse them first and then they're a little slow in the uptick and then they say, hey, well, actually, no, you're the one doing it, then it looks like they're the ones trying to shift the blame and trying to change the subject. You put them on their heels. You make them the ones that have to justify and explain why they are in the right. And all of a sudden, you're off the hook, right? It's very clever. Very uh, diabolical, I should say. I don't want to give too much credit to Kwana Thompson. Put most simply, our view is this. While Reverend DeYoung's subtitle indicates that he believes his review to be an expression of a theological project, we believe his review actually to be expressive of a cultural project that seeks perennially to justify itself on theological grounds. And that cultural project is, in one inelegant and highly disturbing phrase, wait for it, white supremacy. Boom. Let the bells ring out and the banners fly. Feast your eyes on it. It's here, it's here white supremacy. Continuing on, here's what we don't mean. We don't mean in any way that Reverend DeYoung, in his private views, personal relationships, or public ministry, believes or behaves out of the conviction that white people are inherently superior or that non-white people are correlatively inferior. Indeed, in the review itself, DeYoung explicitly declares his convictions to the contrary. We believe him to be a good and faithful man who resists such heresy and who powerfully proclaims the universal glory of the Imago Dei with integrity and truth. But here's what we do mean. Though we believe that he neither sees it nor intends it, Reverend DeYoung, in his review, methodologically centers whiteness at every turn. Like King's opponents in 1963, he consistently privileges white theological voices, minimizes white supremacy's tragic impact on the lives of non-white persons, and prioritizes the comfort of white people. And in this respect, while he does not argue for white supremacy, he nevertheless performs its basic impulses in so doing. He not only tacitly commends some of the most egregious blind spots and tendencies in our theological tradition, he also inadvertently lends his learned and powerful voice to the tragic work of sanctifying the cultural status quo. Viewed in this light, the Young's Review does much more than simply reject our book. It actually perpetuates the very social conditions that our book was written to address. Okay. <laughs> this paragraph, this paragraph is important. They started off with, here's what we do mean. So listen carefully. We believe that he neither sees it nor intends it, but methodologically, he centers whiteness at every turn. And this is where I would call your attention back if you read his piece, if you listened to my review of his review. This is where I would draw your attention back to something he writes where he says that white supremacy does a lot of heavy lifting 
in this book by Quan and Thompson. White supremacy does a lot of heavy lifting. It's like a junk drawer. You can throw everything that you can't prove or substantiate into, and voila, now you don't have the thorny burden of trying to prove your claims. You can just say white supremacy and abracadabra, all of the objections to what you're proposing have to disappear. Them's the rules. So also with dealing with the review of your work. You say white supremacy, boom, gone. And also you can sidestep slandering Kevin DeYoung publicly by saying, oh, he didn't mean it. It's not his fault. He doesn't realize that he's a white supremacist. Guys, don't hold it against him. Just don't take him seriously. Oof. Oof. How does that make any sense with the paragraph before? They say, here's what we don't mean. We don't mean in any way that Reverend DeYoung in his private views, personal relationships, or public ministry believes or behaves out of the conviction that white people are inherently superior. And yet, while believing him to be a good and faithful man who resists such heresy and powerfully proclaims the universal glory of the Imago Dei with integrity and truth, they also accuse him of methodologically centering whiteness at every turn, consistently privileging white theological voices. And when what they say, they're consistently privileging white theological voices. They bring that up later on, and they criticize DeYoung for not having referenced a single black pastor or theologian to make his point. So his argument was not inclusive enough because he was supposed to approach this theological problem in a affirmative action sort of a way, apparently, I guess. But as I pointed out before, how about we throw some Vodi Bakum in there? How about we throw in, since you're talking about economics and politics, let's throw in some Thomas Sowell. How about that? I vote for that. While he does not argue for white supremacy, he nevertheless performs its basic impulses. So again, this is critical race theory. Their book is critical race theory. Their response to the review of their book is critical race theory. They are assuming the premise of their argument. They're assuming the conclusion. So you are racist by virtue of being a white person in America who supports and affirms small government, representative government, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, three branches, the Republican form of government that we have by virtue of supporting free market capitalism, Western civilization, the Western tradition of thought, of life, of culture, by virtue of being a white person who affirms all that, lives it out, internalizes it, you are performing the function of white supremacy because what they mean by white supremacy is Western civilization. This is an attack on Western civilization and free market capitalism as an extension of Western civilization. Why? Because Western civilization and free market capitalism stand in the way of communism. Plain and simple. Boil it all down. That's what this is about. We fundamentally disagree. We don't like what you said about our book because you are supporting and affirming the continuation of Western civilization 
free market capitalism, limited government, individual liberty, individual culpability, guilt, individual justification, individual responsibility. We don't like those things. We're trying to dismantle those things. We're trying to promote cultural Marxism, and you are getting in the way. And you don't realize you're getting in the way, but nothing personal. We're going to have to get you out of the way. We're going to have to remove you. Either remove yourself or we're going to have to remove you. Because we are not insensate to the potentially inflammatory impact of our words here, good job using distancing language to calm yourself down and your reader, especially in our particular cultural moment, a.k.a. cancel culture, we wish to be as explicit as possible. Do we believe that Reverend DeYoung, in his personal beliefs in public ministry, is in any way sympathetic to the convictions of white supremacy? We do not. In Okay, in any way? In any way sympathetic? You don't mean that. You can't mean that. You can't mean that at the same time <clears throat> that you're saying the thing that you are just about to say. Do we believe that Reverend DeYoung is both heir to and practitioner of a mode of theological reasoning that in both past and present has been a crucial factor in sheltering and sustaining the cultural project of white supremacy? We do. Okay, so that's in a way. that That's a way of being sympathetic to the convictions of white supremacy. You're just saying it's unconscious. It's an unconscious bias that he has. That's all you're saying. You do. You do and you don't. You're Schrodinger's white supremacist here where de Young is both a racist and a not racist at the same time. He's a white supremacist and not a white supremacist at the same time. We're supposed to all get dizzy trying to follow your reasoning here while you slip out the back door. <clears throat> in fairness, we do not believe that Reverend DeYoung is in any respect unique in this regard. Of course not. To the contrary, we believe it to be endemic to much of the American church, especially in its evangelical and reformed manifestations. Indeed, this is why we suspect his review felt familiar to many readers and found natural resonance with them. This is why, having been trained in the same ecclesial tradition, we anticipated what many of his concerns would be before we even read the review. Of course, and that's why you're such a fantastic community organizer for the church, because you know all of the mountain pathways to lead the Persian army down so they can come around behind the Spartans at Thermopolis and surround them. Yeah, of course you anticipated many of his concerns. You've had those same concerns, but you suppressed them because you believed it was going to be beneficial to you. This is why we are taking the time to write this response, for we believe that if the evangelical church is ever to play a constructive role in the critical work of healing our nation from the manifest and enduring ravages of white supremacy, a work we believe to be central to any integral missionary vocation in America, we will have to fully and finally reject the pernicious way that the cultural impulses of white supremacy continue to exert methodological control over the theological life of the church. We believe that Reverend DeYoung, because of his integrity, his gifts, and his influence, ought to commit himself to that work. Of course you do. Join us. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. We are Borg. Because of this, in what follows, we explore three examples of these methodological impulses in his review. We do so in hopes that he and all who follow him will both see them and renounce them. Okay. Now, 
due to limitations on time and your attention span, my time and your time, my attention span and your attention span, having read this once through already, I'm going to invite you to read the rest of this article down until the conclusion in depth on your own. I will read off for you real briefly the three impulses that they list. Centering white theology is one of them. They accuse him of excluding black voices, which I mentioned before. Narrowing the gospel. Spiritualizing these things. Engaging in the forensic tendency, the individualizing tendency. They really didn't like that one. They spent a good deal of time getting after him for trying to individualize our responsibility, guilt, justification. They don't like that. They like collectivizing our guilt and justification because they're collectivists. The second tendency, methodological tendency they accused him of is minimizing white supremacy. Even though if you read de Young's piece, he, I think, goes to too great of lengths to make explicitly clear that when they inflate the number of black Africans who were brought to the new world as slaves by a factor of 40, he explicitly states he's in no way trying to minimize how bad it is that 300,000 black Africans were brought to America and the Caribbean and Brazil. He spends more of that paragraph in particular trying to assure the reader that he's not downplaying or minimizing. He's just pointing out the number they cite is not correct. What else is not correct in the rest of their book? Hmm? That's a fair question. But they don't like the fairness of that question. They'd rather change the subject to an argument of ad hominem and accuse him of minimizing white supremacy. He reduces white supremacy to its ideas, they say. He confines white supremacy to the past, which he does not do. But he does insist, and I agree with him entirely, that white supremacy is not the same problem in America that it used to be. White supremacy today, nobody in their right mind, no honest person with even the barest awareness of history could claim that we might as well have slavery still. What was the point of emancipation? What was the point of the civil rights movement? We still live under Jim Crow. Nobody in their right mind, no honest person could claim that nothing has changed in the past 150 years. But if you say that, if you point that out, the young gets the same response from Quanta Thompson that I got from Nathan Smith and Stephanie Marie Watson. You're trying to confine white supremacy to the past. No, but the premise of your argument, you Black Lives Matter, social justice, critical race theory proponents, the premise of your argument that we need to move heaven and earth to check our white privilege, to tear down the system, to abolish capitalism, to abolish the nuclear family, to overhaul the church in America along the lines of your preferred solutions. The premise of what you're saying implies that that's possible to make progress, correct? True or false? If it's possible to make progress, then why are you so hell-bent on denying that any progress has been made as if progress can't be made? 
Which is it? You don't want to recognize that progress has been made because that would involve acknowledging that a very powerful minority, at least, if not a majority, of white Americans and white churches were extremely involved in arguing against the perpetuation of slavery based on race, the mistreatment of freed slaves after the emancipation, and the restoration of God-given inalienable rights to black Americans and Americans of every ethnos, every tribe. You don't want to admit that. You're loath to admit that because it undermines the imperative which you're trying to drive like a stake into the heart of a vampire. The third methodological impulse, Quan and Thompson accuse de Young of perpetuating, thereby affirming and doing the work of white supremacy in America, is privileging white comfort. This is where Quan and Thompson demonstrate that they have read and internalized white fragility, how to be an anti-racist, the color of compromise. They've read all these things and they are on board 100%, totally. Privileging white comfort. One of the ways that DeYoung supposedly does this is he relativizes white guilt. They spend a great deal of time on that. They accuse him of prioritizing white forgiveness. And what they mean by that is that how dare you, how dare you imply that black Americans need to forgive white Americans? How dare you imply that black Americans who are bitter about the history of racial injustice in this country and also claim to be Christians need to give that over to God. How dare you imply that? You're prioritizing white forgiveness. You're centering this all on white comfort because it makes white Americans, white American Christians uncomfortable to be the target of such animus, such bitterness, such contempt from so many professing black American Christians. How dare you prioritize white forgiveness? The conclusion of this response from Quan and Thompson is a standing invitation. And I'll start reading here again instead of summarizing for you. Quan and Thompson write, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail was in important ways a lament. It was a lament over the ways in which well-meaning white Americans, Americans who believe themselves to be sympathetic to the cause of racial healing, actually obstruct that cause by centering white voices, minimizing white supremacy, and prioritizing white comfort. But it was also an invitation, an invitation for these same Americans to turn from these inherited and culturally self-serving modes of reasoning and to fully and finally give themselves to the work of healing our nation from white supremacy. Indeed, he closes his letter by inviting his critics to join him in working toward peace and brotherhood. And yet, in the days following its publication, King's invitation went largely ignored. He continued his work, of course, and in time transposed what once appeared to be certain defeat in Birmingham into one of the era's most celebrated human rights campaigns. But he did this with some notable exceptions, almost wholly without the support of the white church. I disagree strongly with that claim. I disagree strongly with that claim. That's a statement of emotion and feeling and usefulness, not a statement of fact. That is not a statement of fact. 
In a number of important respects, this situation continues in our own time. Our present moment is one of the most extraordinary periods in the struggle for racial healing in decades. Indeed, across the world, people are laboring mightily, not only to see racial injustice, but also to eradicate it from our social order. And not only to eradicate it, but to build something more beautiful in its place. You know, it's funny to me, and I don't mean funny, haha. I mean funny, just weird, just odd. Uh, it catches my attention, this sentence here, second paragraph of Standing Invitation. The third sentence. Indeed, across the world, people are laboring mightily not only to see racial injustice, but also to eradicate it from our social order. Across the world, people are laboring mightily to see racial injustice. Think about that for just a second. Think about that for just a second. Let's say I come home from work, and this happens Monday through Friday, most days. I come home from work, and the house is a disaster. It's a mess. It was a bad day. My wife felt sick. She was feeling nauseous and fatigued, and just not very well because she's pregnant. And the AC doesn't keep up, and the house is overwarm, and we've got kiddos running around, some of them being as sweet as the day is long, and some of them being ornery and some of them needing correction, and some of them getting in, you know, bickering sessions periodically with their siblings, and some of them accidentally hurting themselves or making a spill and not cleaning it up or not doing their chores or getting their schoolwork done and just needing attention. They're not doing anything wrong, but it's just requiring attention. And I come home from work, and the house is a disaster, right? And that happens, right? That's life. That's real life. That's your life. That's my life. That's all our lives, some days. Some days are just like that. I come home, and that's the situation. And I'm tired, and I explode. Why is this over here? And why is this over here? And why is this not picked up? And why is this spilled on the floor and not wiped? And why are these not put away? And why is this out? And why are these guys doing this? And why is he not wearing any pants? And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Right? Now, that's scenario A. Scenario B. Days, weeks, months, years later, I come home. The house is tidy. Everything's picked up. Everything's wiped down. Everything's put away. Schoolwork is done. Everybody got along today. Everybody's being kind. Everybody's clothed and in their right mind. My wife is feeling pretty good. She's been working steadily throughout the day, sewing, doing things. I come home, and I reach into my pocket, and I pull out a white glove slip it on and I walk around the house trying to check surfaces for dust everything's put away everything's fine there's a lot going on but I call everybody to the table and I spend the next hour and a half two hours of their lives kindly politely but unmistakably letting them all know that they've disappointed me greatly today because I found dust on the bookshelves. And there was a corner of the dining room on which some crumbs were left. And I looked at the dishes and there were some water spots because we didn't wipe them down well enough. We didn't blow the grass clippings that had been on the mower 
out of the garage before we put the lawnmower away. And so kiss your evening goodbye because that's all we're going to talk about now. And I want you all to know how very disappointed I am. That's the kind of picture that I see in my mind when I read this sentence from Quan and Thompson in the section of Standing Invitation. Indeed, across the world, people are laboring mightily not only to see racial injustice, but also to eradicate it from our social order. Y'all have got an autoimmune disorder ethically. That's what this is. You guys are asthmatic about the least little perceived aggression, slight disrespect. You guys are like my asthma. I have asthma. I've had asthma since I was three years old. And you guys are like my asthma, where there's this little trigger and something irritates my lungs and boom, they're just going to swell up and try and choke me to death. And I, get, I need to take some medicine to tell my lungs to calm down. Chill. You're not helping right now. You're doing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. You're choking me to death. Oh, no, 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 say my lungs. No, 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 we're protecting you. From what? Breathing? Calm down. Stand down, lungs. Stand down, immune system. People across the world are laboring mightily. Quote, laboring mightily, not only to see racial injustice, but also to eradicate it from our social order. This is revolution, folks. The issue is not the issue, as David Horowitz says. The issue is the revolution. This is revolution. They're trying to upend the entire social order. And they admit People are laboring mightily to see racial injustice. If we have to pull out a white glove and dust the top of the bookshelf before we sit everybody down and go on and on and on and on and on, maybe just maybe it's not as big of a problem as you're making it out to be. Maybe just maybe you need to stand down like my overzealous lungs when they catch a speck of dust, a little fleck of pollen, a bit of pet dander, you know, I had allergy testing here a few weeks ago, and I need to call them back because insurance says everything's going to be 100% paid for. Otherwise, we don't have the money for it right now. But I had an allergy test, and this allergy test involves them scratching your back. A little scratch, not a big one, just a little scratch. And then let's just put a dab of this, that, 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 this, another allergen on that little scratch. And then we're going to measure how much your skin puffs up, if at all, and that will tell us how allergic you are to that thing. And then depending on how many things you're allergic to and how badly, you might be a good candidate for allergy shots to help tell your body, teach your body to calm down. Chill, guy. I am a candidate. I am a good candidate, <laughs> to put it mildly according to the folks at Colorado Allergy and Asthma Center here in Greeley. I'm a good candidate for allergy shots because I am allergic to pretty much everything that they tested me for, everything with very few exceptions. And I'm three, four, lots of fours, very few zeros, lots of threes and fours on things that I'm allergic to. The problem with these woke social justice people is that they're trying to upend this entire social order like so many Bolsheviks, and they're only pointing out 
the problems inherent to czarist Russia. They're trying to convince us at length with a white glove treatment that we might as well live in czarist Russia because there's economic inequity, inequality between men and women, between different ethnic groups in this country. Therefore, we need collectivism. We need central planning. We need another Protestant Reformation along leftist woke lines. Nothing else will do. They are asthmatic in their pleading and urging and calling and insisting on these things. I'll skip down to the very end. Last three paragraphs. Quan and Thompson write, Our book and our response to Reverend DeYoung's review of it are an invitation to the American Evangelical Church to step into this grace. We are not unaware of the costs of doing so. Personally, this will mean confessing that we are inheritors of a cultural order that, even as it secured unprecedented freedoms for one community, knowingly condemned another community to perpetual servitude. Institutionally, it will mean renouncing our chronic self-righteousness, confessing that our churches have been both the stewards and the sanctifiers of that cultural order, and doing the painful theological, relational, and structural work of repentance. And culturally, it will mean deliberately placing ourselves in between two cultural forces locked in perpetual zero-sum warfare, retrenched conservatism and retributive progressivism, and calling each into the kingdom of love, even as we bear their hate with hope. But we are also aware that the costs of not doing so are much more significant. It is our firm conviction that if we do not repent in these ways, we will continue as we have already done to bear false witness regarding the life and love of the Trinity. If we do not repent, we will continue through our lives of privileged indifference to disregard the cries of the poor and the concerns of our neighbors. And if we do not repent, we will in the end condemn ourselves to being what we are always on the verge of becoming a community that, while believing ourselves to be the stewards of a theological project, prove ourselves finally to be the slaves of a cultural one. Oh, so we're all slaves, are we? Yeah. Well, I guess we're all equal. Boom, did it. Don't need communism. Because of this, we invite Reverend DeYoung and all who have ears to hear to renounce the work of centering ourselves to do the work of listening to our neighbors and at long last to finally take up the work that is truly ours to do, the work of repair. Pro tip from somebody with a lot of experience, namely me. I've been through many tours of duty in this theological fight. When folks like Quan and Thompson conclude their message like this, they are not inviting another follow-up. When people on the left, people who are woke, woke Christians, a number of whom I have in my family, and I won't mention them by name, but they know who they are, when they say, you know, we just really need to have a conversation about race in America. We just really need to have a conversation about fill-in-the-blank thing that progressives want. They claim to be this mushy middle that sees the wrong in all sides, in all paths, and yet they're only interested in having a conversation with the left because they're deathly afraid of being canceled by the left, by not being embraced and affirmed by the left. And they spiritualize it and they dress it up in fine-sounding phrases. And what it amounts to is them being sellouts. They don't love the truth, first and foremost. They love saving their own necks. And they're willing to compromise any point 
of theological purity, doctrinal clarity. They're willing to go as low as they possibly can in the interest of furthering their own selfish ambition. All the while accusing anybody who objects from the right, from a conservative side. And when I say conservative, I mean conserving Western civilization. I don't mean conserving white power, white comfort. I mean conserving Western civilization, Christian orthodoxy. Their response to those people is slanderous. It's malicious. It is not gracious. It is not loving. It is not kind. They kindly, sweetly, with a smile on their face, as condescending as can be, say, we're done talking about this for right now. Well, yeah, but you just said you wanted to have a conversation. Yeah, but not with you. Okay. So you're going to have a conversation with the Antifa guy over there, mostly peacefully protesting with a Molotov cocktail. You're going to go share Jesus with him, but you're never going to talk with me again, even though I'm family, even though I'm, I'm an old friend. I'm beyond the pale. I'm out. Got it. That's what your conversation looks like. When anybody who questions the party line gets kicked off of social media, gets disinvited from parties, gets 10,000 word run you through the ringer publicly with a smile on your face, liberal fascism coming with a smiley face as Jonah Goldberg famously wrote, not buying it. Sell it somewhere else. I'm not buying it. You are wolves in sheep's clothing. You're false teachers. You're the one who needs to repent. Knowingly or unknowingly, you are a tool for communism. And I'm not going to be a party to this charade. You're a mountebank. You're an unscrupulous pretender. Be warned. That's all I've got for this episode. I got to run. That's long enough for today. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.